please turn your Bibles with me to 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 36. So you try to find that. It's, it's, it's before you get to Psalms. It's after, it's after 1 Chronicles. It's after First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, 1 Chronicles, and then, then you have Second uh, Chronicles. As you turn there to Second Chronicles, just as a, a note, I mentioned this earlier, but the things are kind of going to look different in the life of our church over the, the next month and, and beyond, but for sure over the next month we're going to be changing uh, our schedule a little bit. Our, our ministries are really going to focus on uh, relief, on our relief ministries, and we believe that God has given our, our church a very it's a unique opportunity. God is, has literally torn down the walls between us and our community, people who've who we've never had an opportunity to get to know. We have the opportunity to get to know and care for and love on, and we're going to take advantage of that. We're going to really pursue that. And I, I would just say this to those of you who are, who are part of Bethany Community Church especially. We're very grateful. God, God has brought a lot of people into our community from outside our community who are here to help, and we're, we're grateful for them. But, but already uh, they're having to, to go back to the places uh, where they're from. We're still here, Right. And so I'd encourage you to take advantage of, of this time and, and to really step up, and we're going to try to be careful not to overburden our church with relief efforts, but we're going to try to provide a lot of opportunities for us and, and others who want to come alongside us to, to meet the needs of people in our community. So I encourage you to look at that. Check out our uh, church website at bethanycommunitychurch.org, our Facebook page for updates on, on work come out, be a part of those. It's, it's a neat opportunity to, to love on our, our community, and, and we're going to be here long after the last uh, outside organization leaves. We're going to be here by God's grace next month and the month after that, the year after that, and we're going to be able to, to be in this community helping it rebuild, and, and it's our joy and an opportunity God has given us, so let's, let's take advantage of it. And this month, what that means is we put some other ministries on hold and we'll begin to reintroduce those uh, by God's grace, if He wills, in January. So we're in Second Chronicles, and let me just—we're going to talk more about the context of what we're reading later. But Second uh, Chronicles, this is looking at a king named Zedekiah. He's the last king of Judah before the the, the nation of Judah is carried away into exile. And so we're going to kind of read about that here in verses 11 through 23. And so, if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read these verses together, if, if you are able. Verse 11, 2 Chronicles 36. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah, the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck, and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but they kept mocking the messengers of God despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of God rose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore, 
He brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill seventy years. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him, let him go up. You may be seated. May God strengthen us through the reading of his word this morning. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word here. We thank you for the opportunity this morning to worship you through the proclamation of it and listening to it. Give us your grace, give us your strength, the ability to obey it, to to know it, to understand it, to comprehend it. We pray this in your son Jesus' name, amen. There are some books that you don't know that you need to read until it's too late to read them. For example, imagine I'm standing at a bookstore and I see on the shelf of this bookstore a book entitled How to Survive a Bear Attack. It doesn't seem all that relevant to me at the time and so I don't purchase that book, but later when I find myself running through the woods with a bear chasing me, I'm sure some part of the back of my mind might be thinking, boy, I really wish I had read something about what to do in this situation. It might come in handy right now. Sometimes we don't know what we need to know until it's too late to know it. I thought about that this last week. There was a radio show that was kind of doing some recording at the farmhouse, and the radio host asked me, he said, how did your church know what to do after this crisis struck your community? And I thought, man, we had no idea what to do. And many times over the last two weeks, I've been thinking, boy, I wish that I wish that there had been some class in seminary that I could have, could have taken on, on how to deal with a disaster, how to, to shepherd a church after a disaster strikes. That would have come in really handy. Of course, at the time, I probably wouldn't have taken it because who knew that we would need a class like that? Monday, November the, eight, uh, November the 18th, right after the tornadoes, the Monday after the tornado struck, I'm there in the, the farmhouse and we had tried to gather together as a staff to, to pray and talk about what ministry looked like in the aftermath of, of a tornado. And I'm, I'm looking at, at our staff, and, and half our staff aren't even able to be there. We're in, a, in a, a building with no power or heat, and I'm thinking, we have no idea what to do. I, I don't know what this is going to look like. We're, we're not a relief agency. We're a church. We don't even have a a building that we meet in as a church. I mean, our resources are so limited. What is God going to call us to do 
in a situation like this. I think God was very gracious, it has been, and continues to be very gracious to us over the next two weeks. As, as I saw you know, Ben develop this plan and, and, and other people kind of come alongside, and each person, all the, the staff and volunteers, and lab, I mean, everyone just started doing their thing by God's grace, and, and God has been able to do some neat things in our community through the churches and, and through each person kind of doing their, their thing. And as I reflect on the last two weeks, if, if you were to ask me, why do you think that we've been able to do some of the things that we've been able to do and, and what challenge awaits us in the future, I would say, you know, I think we've been able to do the things that we've been able to do because we have kept our minds and, and hearts focused on our ultimate purpose. We've said that our, our church exists to glorify God as we evangelize, that is, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and as we disciple, that is, as we prepare people to worship him forever. That's, that's what we've kept our, our, our minds and our hearts focused on. And if you were to say, well, can you, can you sum that up in one word? What, what's, what's the purpose of the church in one word that you've tried to keep your hearts focused on? I'd say that that one word would be the word worship. Our church, Bethany Community Church, and, and the other churches that, that are focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ, we understand that our, our ultimate purpose is to worship as we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, as we prepare people to, to worship him forever, our, our, our overarching desire is to be worshipers. And I believe that, that God has been gracious to our church as we've kept that as our focus. So if our church find our, found ourselves in a time of, of ease and, and kind of relative of prosperity, our task in that setting would be worship. If we found ourselves in a time of persecution, our purpose as a church would be what? Worship. If we found ourselves in the middle of a war zone, our purpose would be worship. No matter where we find ourselves as a church, our ultimate task is worship. And I believe as we as a church are faithful to that ultimate purpose, God will be very gracious to us. He will allow us to do the things that he's called us to do in that moment as we keep our eyes fixed on him and understand the ultimate purpose of the church is worship. Now, what's true for a church is also true for you as an individual. If I were to ask you, what is your ultimate purpose? What is the, the reason that you exist? What's your, your primary task in life? What would you say? In fact, not just what would you say, but if, if we were to, to look at our lives and just kind of look at what we do in a week or in a month or in a year, in a day, what would we determine is, is our ultimate purpose? Maybe for some of us, we say, you know what, our, my ultimate purpose is to be a, a dad, or my ultimate purpose is to be a mom, or my ultimate purpose is, is to be a, you know, I'm a runner, or my ultimate purpose is to, to be a, a financial guy, or an employee, or an employer. That, that's my ultimate purpose, and, and, and what we would say is that that's a wrong ultimate purpose for a person whose heart has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. My ultimate purpose in life as an individual is to be a worshiper of God. God has designed me to worship him. And so as I find myself as a dad, I'm not just a dad. My ultimate purpose is to be a dad who is a worshiper. As I find myself as a, a pastor, my ultimate job isn't a pastor. My ultimate job is to be a worshiper of God who, who is a pastor. I, I find myself in a, a corporation and my ultimate purpose isn't to be a cog in that corporation. My ultimate purpose is to be an employee in that organization, that corporation who is a worshiper of the one true God. That 
is our task. That is our purpose. And that is the reason that God has given us the gospel. For those of you who may be just joining us this morning, we've been going through a series about the gospel. The gospel as found in the Old Testament, the promise of the gospel, the promise of the good news of Jesus. And what I have wanted us to understand is that the gospel isn't a message that begins in the New Testament. The story of Jesus isn't a story that just kind of begins at the Christmas story. The Christmas story is a story that, that begins a, a new element of God's work, but it, it's, it's God's work that has been proclaimed since eternity past, proclaimed since the Garden of Eden, planned in eternity past. And the main thing that I want you to grasp as we look at the period of Israel's history that deals with the kings this morning in the Old Testament, if you're taking notes, you can just kind of jot this idea down. We've talked before about the person of Jesus Christ, and we've talked about how the, the gospel is understood and how the gospel is proclaimed and things like that. But what I want you to understand this morning as we look at the kings, here's the, the phrase I want you to remember. The goal of the gospel is worship. Okay? The goal of the gospel is worship. The goal of the gospel, as we look at the gospel proclaimed in the Old Testament, the goal of the gospel is so that people can be reconciled to God through this coming Redeemer, Jesus Christ, and can become worshipers. The goal of the gospel right now as we find ourselves in the church age, as we find ourselves as a part of this community of faith called the church, the goal of the gospel, the goal of believing in Jesus Christ is so that we can become worshipers. The goal of the gospel on into eternity in the future is going to be that we can continue to be worshipers of God. The goal of the gospel is worship. The goal of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that we can be reconciled to God through faith in the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. The goal of that message is that we would become worshipers. The goal of the gospel is worship. The goal of the gospel is worship. That's what I want us to see this morning as we look at this period of Israel's history that deals with the kings. All right, there's a lot to cover this morning, okay? So, um, and, if, and if history isn't really your thing, uh, you got a little bit of an extra challenge this morning because we're going to deal with a lot of history in this section of Scripture. I'm going to try to make it as uh, painless as possible, okay? But, but try, to, try to stay with me as, as much as we can. Let me give you a little bit of a context for where we find ourselves this morning as we read 2 Chronicles 36. In fact, let's do it this way. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to the table of contents? And if you don't have a Bible, maybe you can become friends with the person who's, who's next to you. Meet them, sit real close to them, invade their personal space, uh, however you want to do it. Great with me. As you look at the table of contents, the first book that you encounter there in the table of contents is Genesis, okay? And in fact, those first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are all written by Moses. Uh, Genesis, and I'm just going to do this real quickly because we've, we've covered some of this before, but, but Genesis deals with creation. It talks about the story of Adam and Eve and how sin entered into humanity through Adam's sin we talked about how in the story of the Garden of Eden, there's the promise of the gospel, the promise of Jesus Christ who's going to, to deal with the curse of sin. In Genesis, we also deal with the story of, of Abraham and how God promises Abraham 
a land. He promises Abraham descendants. He's going to make his, his descendants numerous. And he's going to, through Abraham, God promises, he's going to bless all the nations. And we call that, that promise that God makes to Abraham beginning in Genesis uh, 12, we call that the Abrahamic covenant. The rest of the book of Genesis traces some of Abraham's descendants. You come to the book of Exodus and Abraham's descendants have become numerous. They become slaves in Egypt. God brings them through Exodus, uh, through Deuteronomy. He brings them out of Egypt into the promised land. And as he brings them in, or he prepares to bring them into the promised land, he tells them in those books how they're to live. The next book that you see after Deuteronomy is the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua takes place around 1400 B.C., as the people of Israel go into the land that God promised Abraham, and they, and they conquer it, and they begin to live in it. The next book is the book of Judges, and that takes place from around 1350 B.C. to about 1150 B.C., and in that time period, we see the, the people of, of Israel enter into a time of, of sin. There's no one king over the people of Israel, and so there's this time of sin, and there'll be a time of suffering, then there's a time of God's deliverance, and there's this cycle that continues over and over again. The people sin, God causes them to suffer, then they ask for God's salvation, he delivers them, and then they sin again, and so there's this, this cycle that takes place in the book of Judges. The next book that you see there in your table of contents is the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth is a story that takes place uh, during the time of the Judges, Okay. Well, now, look at the next six books, and that's really where we're focusing on this morning, all right? We have uh, six books, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles, all right? And those are really three books. First and Second Samuel is really the book of Samuel, originally, and then First and Second Kings were the book of Kings, and First and Second Chronicles is really the book of Chronicles. What happened is these were longer works, and so they were placed on two different scrolls, and so the first scroll is what we now know as First Samuel, Second Scroll, Second Samuel, and so forth. Here's what takes place during these books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. In the book of Samuel, we see the establishment of the monarchy, of the kings of Israel, Samuel is born in the book of 1 Samuel, and the first king becomes Saul. Saul doesn't follow Yahweh God with his whole heart, and so the kingship is removed from Saul. And then we have the reign of David, and David begins to reign in about 1000 B.C. and, and reigns until about 970 B.C. We talked about, some of you, actually I guess we we began to talk about uh, David and the, the covenant that God makes with David two weeks ago, uh, and then we, uh, we, we didn't get all that message in the second service, of course. But, uh, but with that, that covenant that God makes with David, he's making this covenant that is, continues the, the promise he made to Abraham, continues the promise that he made to, to Adam and Eve of bringing a redeemer, a deliverer. We see as God talks to David in 1 Samuel chapter 7, we see that, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see that this, this coming king is going to be this, this redeemer who, who establishes an eternal kingdom, all right? David has a son, and his son's name is, is Solomon, and Solomon becomes king after David, and King Solomon becomes king in about 970 B.C. 
King Solomon's reign, we see it covered in, in 1 Kings. And in fact, uh, if you would, turn with me to 1 Kings, and let's, let's look at 1 Kings chapter 8. King Solomon does what David is un, was unable to do. King Solomon builds the temple. This is a major development in the history of Israel, and I, I want you to see what the temple was supposed to be, because it's going to come up in what we're looking at this morning as we're talking about the gospel to the kings. Here's what, uh, so this temple is built, Solomon builds a temple, and listen to what Solomon prays here in 1 Kings chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. Solomon is praying to God, and he says, but will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built, yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the plea of your servant and your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. What Solomon is saying here is he's saying, look, God, I know that I know that you're not this God that we can put in a box, this little box we call the temple. We, we know that this temple can't contain you. All the entire created realm can't contain you. You are beyond containing. And yet, what we ask is that you would, as you've promised, look on this, this temple, this, this house of yours with favor. I encourage you to read through 1 Kings chapter 8 sometime to, to hear all that Solomon desires, this this. This, this house to be and all that God promises that he will do. It's a place that the people of Israel can go and receive forgiveness. It's a place that the person who's a foreigner can, can hear about God and, and, and come and, and worship God and find out more about God in this temple. It's a place where forgiveness can, can be, be sought and it's a, it's a special place in where God can be worshiped. And you know what Solomon's doing here? Solomon is, is fulfilling the purpose for which God established the kingship. God established the king so that the king could be a person who would bring God's people in, into worship, into a deeper understanding of who God is. And that's what Solomon is, is doing here. Unfortunately, Solomon doesn't stay faithful to that purpose of leading God's people into worship. Uh, Solomon begins to pursue other gods, and, and after Solomon's reign comes to a conclusion, uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, loses half the kingdom. And as you go through the rest of First and Second Kings, you see these, these two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom that has ten of the tribes of Israel. It's called Israel. And there's the southern kingdom in Israel called Judah. And it has the, the tribe of Judah and, and the, the people of Benjamin. And so there's these, these two kingdoms. And the rest of the description of the kings throughout 2 Kings doesn't deal so much with their political accomplishments or their economic accomplishments. What the writer of, of Kings is talking about is how these kings either led people toward worship of God or away from worship of Yahweh God. And over and over again, the sad truth of the matter is, is that people are being drawn away from worship of Yahweh God. The northern kingdom, the kingdom as you read through the prophets, as you read through 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles is, is described as Israel or sometimes as Samaria. 
that northern kingdom is even more wicked than the southern kingdom of Judah. And that northern kingdom is carried away into captivity by the Assyrians in about 722 B.C. The people of God in the southern kingdom still refuse, ultimately, to respond in worship of Yahweh. And so the events that we're looking at in 2 Chronicles 36 deal with that last king of Judah before they too are carried away into exile. Now, Chronicles, stay with me here, I know there's a lot here, but Chronicles, the first part of Chronicles, covers the same events as First and Second Samuel, and Second Chronicles covers the same time period as First and Second Kings. Chronicles is written after the people of Judah are carried away into exile and after they return. And imagine that you've been through the terror that the people who are carried away into captivity and returned, imagine you, you're, you're in their situation. And the question that they're asking themselves as they come back out of captivity, the question they're asking themselves is, does God still care about us? Is God still going to be faithful to this covenant that he made? Sometimes, if you've ever tried to read through the Bible, you may have come to First Chronicles, and, and you've looked at First Chronicles chapter 1, and you've said, oh my, that is a lot of names. And then you've gone, you said, well, well surely, uh, surely it'll, it'll end, and it doesn't. And you come to chapter 2, and there's more names that you can't pronounce. And then you come to chapter 3, and you say, well, finally, nope, there's more. And it goes on chapter after chapter of name after name after name, and you've thought, what is the deal what is, what, what's with this, this chronicler guy? I mean, is he just kind of bragging about all these names that he knows or how good he is at genealogies? I mean, maybe there's a, a person in your family that's like the keeper of the family tree and they're kind of annoying to you because they're all, you know, you know we had a relative who knew Einstein or something. You're like, who cares? And, and you're, you kind of look at chronicles like, who cares about all this? I don't even know who these people are. This is, this is, this is not an idle list of names. I've told you over and over again, so often we, we just kind of look at, little pieces of Scripture at a time in the Old Testament. We don't understand how it fits in the overall all purpose. Here's what's happening is the, the, the writer of Chronicles sits down and writes as the people have come back from exile. He's going back, and he's starting with the Davidic promise, starting with the tribe of Judah and stuff like that. He's going through this list of names, and he's saying, God's plan for his people is not over. The promise that he made to David is not just a promise to David, it's, it's rooted in his character and his faithfulness to all of the people who came before David, and it's rooted in the promise made to Abraham, and that promise is, is rooted in the promise made to Adam. This is God's plan of redeeming all nations. It's not just something that God tried for a while, didn't work out, and so he kept us uh, in captivity, and now he's bringing us back for kind of a lark, but has no plan for us. Our being brought back into this, this place where we've been brought back as part of, of God's plan of, of bringing us back into worship of Yahweh God. It's rooted in these covenants and promises he's made beforehand. And what the writer of Chronicles does is he, he goes back through Israel's history and he describes how worship of Yahweh was not pursued as it should be, as it should have been. He calls the people to deeper worship, which is what? The goal the gospel. So with that in mind, let's look at 2 Chronicles 36. I know that's a long introduction and background, but let's look now, in the time that's left, at, at, at one king, this last king of the southern kingdom of Judah, 
and what we see about about how the kings were supposed to be people who led the the people into worship of Yahweh and, and how worship is the goal of the gospel and the kings failed in pursuing that ultimate goal of the good news that God was proclaiming. Here's the first thing I want you to see in verses 11 through 14. The first thing I want you to see is the king leads the people away from worship. The king leads people away from worship. Two weeks ago, I talked about the importance of leadership and how vital a leader is in, in developing people and to, to be the people that God has intended them to be. And I, I told some stories about a track coach that I had and, and how uh, he was sometimes very encouraging to me and, and sometimes made me feel about, about that big and, and how important his leadership was in my life. And there's, there, there are people in your life as well that you can point to and say, these people are influential and they helped me be the, become the person that I am today or they, they, they hindered me in my development as, as a person today. And the last two weeks, we've seen examples, I think, in our community of, of very good leaders. And, and we've also seen some examples of people coming into our community that I don't think have our community's best interests at heart and, and have, have approached our community maybe in a, a negative way and, and not been the leaders that, that you desire God to bring into your community. What about this King Zedekiah? What type of leader is he? Listen to what the writer of Chronicles tells us. It says that he's, he's 21 years old. He begins to reign, and, and he, he reigns for 11 years in Jerusalem, and, and he does what's evil in the sight of, of Yahweh God. He doesn't humble himself before Jeremiah, and this is the same Jeremiah that wrote the book of Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations. And Jeremiah comes to Zedekiah, and we see this in Jeremiah 27, 28, and he tells Zedekiah some tough truths. He tells Zedekiah that as, as Babylon begins to exert its influence, that Zedekiah, because of the wickedness of the people, is to, to submit to Nebuchadnezzar and to the Babylonian Empire, and Zedekiah refuses. He also, it says, rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck. He hardened his heart. And what happens as a leader begins to, to rebel against the Lord? What happens to the people who are falling? Usually, it says, they did so as well. All the officers, the priests, and the people were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And then look at that last sentence in verse 14. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. What's the purpose of the temple? The purpose of the temple of God's house is to be a place that people can come and, and understand who God is. Zedekiah turns it into a place where not only do people not find out who God is, that it leads them further away from God. The human heart is, is to be a place where, where God is worshipped, where, where, where God's name is exalted. And so often our, our heart, instead of becoming a place where, where God is worshipped, it becomes a place where the, our understanding of God is diluted. Don't underestimate God's call on your life to influence people to know and to worship him. Our family is uh, reading through uh, the book of Numbers together. We just kind of sit down uh, most evenings and, and read a chapter from the book of Numbers. And this last week, we were, uh, as we were reading through the book of Numbers, we, we came to Numbers 16. And in Numbers chapter 16, there's this story of a, of a man named Korah and some other leaders who stood and opposed Moses as as, as God's leader of the people of Israel. And there's this, there's this verse in Numbers 16 where it's talking about Korah opposing Moses, and, he, and he's decided to oppose Moses. 
and he kind of comes out with, with his family. And there's this part of this verse that, that sends chills down my spine when I read it, and it, and it, and it just deeply bothered me this week as I, as I read it with my family. So I'm sitting on the couch reading this, and my, my kids are sitting on either side of me and stuff, and, and, and it says this. It says, Korah, as, as he gets ready to, to stand against Moses and against God, it says that he stood there with his, he and the other leaders stood there with their wives and their sons, and then this is the phrase, and their little ones. Think about that picture. Here's a person who has committed themselves to standing in opposition to God. So God has said, do this, and he said, nope, I'm going to do this. And in, in his capacity as, as a dad and as a husband, he leads his whole entire family to opposing what God wants him to do. And it's, it's a vivid picture here because God's wrath is about to be poured out on, on Korah and the, the followers, but Korah, as he opposes God, brings his little kids in line of God's wrath as well. So I read that this last week. You know what I prayed? I prayed that God would cause me to not be influential at times in my children's life. I said, God, in my failures as a parent, as, as, a, as a Christ follower, in the, the Areas of my life where I've struggled to obey you consistently, please protect my children from my influence. A leader is incredibly influential in, in, in drawing people to worship of God or pulling them away from God. And there's an incredible opportunity that God has placed in your life to point people to worship. And what happens here, that the purpose of the gospel is worship, the goal of the gospel is worship, and the king fails. The king leads people away from worship. He takes the temple that was to be a place of worship and pollutes it. Here's the second thing I want you to see in the story. The people mock God's call to return to worship. That's the next thing I want you to see. Second point here. The people mock God's call to return to worship. Look at verse 15. It says, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of their fathers, he, he sent persistently to them. And the idea is that over and over again, he's, he's graciously sending them these, these prophets. And the reason he does that, the writer tells us, is because he has compassion. There's this, this inward desire that God has to see people become worshipers. He loves them, and he has compassion on his people. And look at that again, on his dwelling place. There's this, this, the temple, this special place where God God dwells in a special way, and, and he desires that to be a place of worship, and so he has compassion. But look what happens, verse 16. They kept mocking. There's continual mocking the messengers of God. They despise his words. They scoff at his prophets. It says this happens until there's no remedy. I think sometimes we underestimate how serious false worship is. God has called us to worship him in spirit and in truth. He has said our, our ultimate purpose is to engage in worship of him. Our ultimate purpose is to live a life. And no matter what we do in life, our ultimate purpose in those activities we're doing is, is to bring glory to him. And I think sometimes we fail to appreciate how seriously God takes that call. We're kind of flippant in that call of God on our lives. We operate under the delusion that we can kind of worship God sometimes and kind of do our own thing at other times. And so I can worship God in some areas of my life and in other areas of my life. Who cares what God says? I can do whatever I want. I was talking to a, fa to a, uh, a person, uh, kind of a family member down in, in Texas, and 
we were talking about the tornado, and, and this family member said, so have things got back to normal yet? I said, no, I, they haven't. <laughs> uh, and they never will be. They'll never be whatever normal was two weeks ago. That's gone. They said, well, I'm sure they'll get back to normal eventually. Now, I don't think they had a bad heart in saying that. I just think they, didn't, they haven't been here. They haven't seen the community, and they, they haven't seen what it looks like now. And they don't understand. Look, I'm not saying that, that things will always be bad, but that things will never be what they were. They don't understand the, the level of devastation. I, I think that's how we sometimes approach worship. We kind of have a vague, yeah, worship, we should worship God. Our lives should be lived for God's glory. But we don't understand the, the enormity of the call of God on our lives to worship. And we don't understand how serious and how devastating the consequences of not worshiping God are. That brings us to the third thing we see here. God uses human instruments to stop false worship. How seriously does God take false worship. We see in verses 17 through 21, and as you look at verses 17 through 21, as God sovereignly uses a human instrument, now God is not the author of evil, but he sovereignly even uses evil. He sovereignly uses this human instrument to totally destroy the temple. You say, well, hold on, Daniel. Whoa, whoa, whoa. First Kings 8. God loves the temple. God's a huge fan of the temple. I mean, his presence was there, and he was excited about the temple. Brothers and sisters, this is how seriously God takes false worship. God is a holy God, and he would rather remove the temple than allow people to come to the temple and be deceived about who he is and about what proper worship looks like. Do you see that? This isn't a mild destruction. I mean, they burn down the house of God. They break down the wall of Jerusalem. They remove all the instruments that were used in worship, and they're all taken into exile. This is all to fulfill the, the word of the Lord by, by the mouth of Jeremiah, by the way. But all of this takes place so that this false worship can no longer take place. God takes worship seriously. You say, well, well Daniel, what, what does good worship look like? Well, first of all, God-honoring worship is undistracted. It's undistracted. And so often as we, we think, okay, I'm going to engage in worship and I'm going to sing some songs or I'm, I'm going to kind of pray, but, but really our minds aren't thinking about God. It, we're kind of thinking about a million different things. Maybe even right now, like you're, you're working on your to-do list as you're, as you're trying to kind of do the God thing and the other things you got going on this week. And, and true worship of God is undistracted. True worship of God is not only undistracted, it's unmingled. It's unmingled. You know what the people of Israel had a huge problem with throughout their history? They'd worship God, but they'd also want to worship these, these other gods. So they say, okay, I'm going I'm to worship the Yahweh God, but I'm also going to worship the Baals. And I'm going to kind of mix some, some elements together. And you know what? True worship of God is, is unmingled. It's unmingled. You can't say, well, you know what? I'm going to worship God, and I'm going to worship my family. I'm going to worship God, and I'm going to worship materialism. I'm going to worship God, and I'm going to worship fill in the blank. You, you can't do it. True worship of God is, is 
undistracted, it's, it's unmingled, and it's also unsurpassed. In other words, as I think about God, as I think about glorifying Him in my life, as I worship Him rightly, there's no other thing in my life that has the same level of affection. My focus is on God and God alone in terms of what my ultimate goal in life is. That's what worship looks like. That's what the purpose of my life is. True worship of God is undistracted, it's unmingled, it's unsurpassed. As I think about God and His purposes for me. The last thing we see in the story then is that God moves in the hearts of people to restore worship. He works and moves in the hearts of people to restore worship. The last few verses here, beginning in verse 22, are repeated in the book of Ezra as it describes the rebuilding of the temple. But what happens here is that God works in this pagan king's heart, Cyrus, king of Persia. And listen to what king of Persia Cyrus says in verse 23. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. So what happens here in this story? There's a king who takes the temple of God and instead of being allowed, instead of it being a place where, where God is, is worshipped and known, he turns it into a place where worship of God is polluted. God warns people, he says, turn, and the people say, no, we're not going to do that. And, and so what happens is that place of worship is removed and destroyed. And then God allows worship to begin anew. God is, get the big picture here as we go through the Old Testament. The, the big picture is that, that God's plan is always to redeem his people so they can be brought into relationship with him and engage in worship. And God is going to destroy those things and remove those things that prevent worship. As we see the gospel proclaimed in the book of Kings, we see people who are not pursuing the goal of the gospel, which is worship. And so here's what I want you to do as we kind of begin to close our time together this morning. I want you to ask yourself, what are the, those things in my heart that are competing for my affection for God? What are those things that God is going to have to deal with in my heart if I'm going to worship him rightly? What are those idols that are competing for my affection? It could be some good things. Maybe it's, maybe it's a job that you love. Maybe it's some, some financial resources that God has, has given to you, and God, you're taking a good thing that God has given you, and you're, you're getting it all warped. Maybe it's even a good thing like family. You know, God has given you this family, and, and, and your family has, has totally taken over your life in the sense that, that God is, is somewhere far, far down in your affections compared with the people whom he's given to you. If God was going to have to destroy things in your heart to prevent false worship, what would he need to destroy? What would God need to destroy in your heart to tear down the idols, to stop the false worship, to allow the goal of the gospel to be accomplished in your heart that is worship of him? In fact, why don't you just bow your heads right now with me? The gospel, the good news, ultimately is, is Jesus Christ. It's the good news that, that we can have salvation. We can be received into a relationship with God through trusting in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. That means we make Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. We, we place our trust and our hope in Him alone on the basis of His work on the cross and His perfect life. So I want you, as you bow your, your heads with me, to ask God, Father God, please show me those things that I'm worshiping instead of you. And I want you to tell God, by faith, that you want him to remove those things 
from occupying the place that they do in your heart right now? What is it that's consuming your heart? What is it that even right now as you try to concentrate on prayer is keeping your heart from focusing on God? Ask God to reveal that to you, to change you, to allow you to pursue the goal of the gospel, worship. Go and pray that. God, our hearts are, are idol factories, as you know. We are constantly pursuing things instead of you or, or other people instead of you, other gods. and Our hearts are not wholly devoted to you. We know this is a serious thing. Please move in the hearts of your people to restore proper worship of you through faith in your son, Jesus Christ, alone. We pray this in his name. Amen.